This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Duvuri Subbarao, Distinguished International Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania and the former Governor of the Reserve Bank of India. Mr. Subbarao, thank you so much for joining us today in Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you, Mukul. Pleasure to be here. On December 10th, you spoke at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Advanced Study of India, and the topic was, India, will the elephant start dancing again? Why is the elephant an apt metaphor for the Indian economy? That's a good question. You know, in development economic parlance, the East Asian economies, uh, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, are referred to as the tigers. The next generation of Asian economies, Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, are referred to as the cubs, and then China, dragon. All of these countries delivered a growth miracle in the last 40 years. The first were the East Asian economies who defied the Washington consensus. Mm-hmm. And with state capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, they moved from subsistence levels of poverty to prosperous societies. China accomplished an astonishing feat in um, the history of development economics, growing on a trot for a, on a uh, for growing on a trot for about three decades at double-digit pace. So the next miracle, hopefully, will be from India, and India is referred to as an elephant because an elephant is a strong animal with enormous potential, but given to a lumbering pace. So the hope is that the elephant, India, will start dancing and uh, perform the next growth miracle. So why hasn't it been dancing so far? <laughs> you know, growth, as we know, in India slumped to 5% or less than 5% on an annualized basis, causing a lot of anxiety and concern, both for the government and for all of us Indians. And growth has slumped simply because all growth drivers have paid it out. Growth comes from consumption, that is both private consumption, government consumption, investment, and net exports. The investment driver has paid it out some years ago. Uh, Net exports are actually deducting from growth. They used to contribute positively to growth, but they're not doing so anymore. So over the last five years, the single growth driver has been consumption, both government and private. Uh, government is unable to spend further because of fiscal restraints. Uh, private consumption has come down um, because of uh, credit uh, uh, channels being choked and households have run down their savings. So private consumption, the last growth driver, has petered out and India has uh, uh, you know, come down to a 5% growth. So not only is the elephant not dancing, it's barely able to walk. Oh, boy. So why don't you take a look at the past and and see how the situation developed? Uh, Since we are almost at the beginning of 2020, uh, could you put India's growth trajectory uh, during the past 20 years into perspective and and think about some of the major factors since 2000 that have brought the economy to where it stands today? Sure. In fact, uh, that is one of the questions that I addressed in the lecture that you referred to earlier. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to go back to the turn of the century, 20 years ago, 
when a remarkable confluence of circumstances generated and strengthened the view that India has arrived. That is because of a structural upturn in the economy triggered by an unprecedented investment boom accompanied by an unprecedented credit boom. Investment went into production, went into infrastructure. Investment as a proportion of GDP went as high as 38%. The India growth story started unfolding. In the five years before the global financial crisis, we clocked 8.5% to 9% growth on the average. In fact, we weathered the global financial crisis too uh, reasonably well. We came out of the crisis sooner than most other emerging economies. But things started unraveling, I would say, around 2010, when uh, many projects got delayed, investment soured, bad loans went up, financial sector came under stress. That was for a number of reasons. In popular perception, it is associated with crony capitalism. Mm. There was a bit of crony capitalism, but there were a number of other factors as well, uh, in fact, more important factors. For example, much of this investment went into infrastructure, which was an uncharted territory, both for the corporates investing and for the banks lending to them. Then there were delays in projects because of clearances, permits. There were Supreme Court orders, for example, in coal block allocation in 2G spectrum, which delayed projects as well. So for a number of reasons, projects got delayed, investment engine had switched off. And for the last five years, in fact, for the entire Prime Minister Modi's first term in office, the economy was firing on a single engine of consumption. And as I said earlier, that consumption engine too has now uh, petered out with the result that uh, growth has uh, now come to 5%, which is uh, causing a lot of concern. Very often, uh, people tend to compare India and China. Uh, and I was wondering what you think uh, about why India didn't follow the path blazed by China as was widely expected. Yeah, the India-China hyphenation is an interesting thing because uh, we in India are eager to be hyphenated with China, whereas China, I think, is quite disdainful of that. But that's an interesting comparison because if you go back 30 years to, say, 1990, India and China were roughly at par, whether you measure per capita income in terms of PPP or in uh, current market prices, India and China were at par. But then after that, China zoomed, whereas India lumbered along. Today, China is five times India's GDP. China's per capita income is nearly five times India's per capita income. The number of poor people China lifted out of poverty is unprecedented in human history, whereas India still has hundreds of millions of poor people. China is a middle-middle-income country. India is a low-middle-income country. China's fear is that it'll get locked into a middle-income trap. India's fear is that it'll get locked into a low-income trap. Both India and China grew because of investment. But China's investment continued, whereas India's investment, as I told you earlier, has petered out. And, uh, of course, there are other differences. Uh, for example, China is an authoritarian regime. India is a democracy. China 
produced and exported, whereas India produced and passed on the benefits for consumption to the poorer sections of society. So they were different growth models. Do you think uh, India will be able to replicate the Chinese model of export-led growth? I hope it will be, but uh, it'll be difficult. You know, we talk, uh, Prime Minister Modi has talked about uh, engineering uh, manufacturing revolution in India because we need to create jobs, hundreds of millions of jobs. We need to accelerate the growth rate. For those purposes, we need to engineer a manufacturing revolution because manufacturing uh, can generate jobs of the type and of the numbers we want. But we need to export as well, maximize exports. But whether we can be a growth engine, an export growth engine, an export powerhouse like China is a different proposition because if you think deeply, there are important differences between 1990 when China opened up and 2019 when India wants to be an export powerhouse. You know, in 1990, globalization was seen as a benign phenomenon, mm-hmm. improving welfare in rich countries and in poor countries. Today, there's a backlash against globalization. Again, back in 1990, world demand was expanding at a scorching pace. Today, world demand is subdued. You call it secular stagnation because of demographics or whatever. Again, in the 1990s, global value chains were becoming a cornerstone of manufacturing and giving an avenue to emerging economies to exploit the comparative advantage of their inexpensive labor. Today, the global value chain model is eroding because of uh, advances in artificial intelligence and robotics in machine learning. So for all this, because of all these reasons, it will be difficult mm-hmm. for India to replicate the China model of export-led growth, although I hope and believe that uh, we will engineer a manufacturing revolution and maximize exports. Uh, when the first Modi administration took office in 2014, uh, it inherited a structural downturn uh, whose roots go back, as you said before, to 2010. Uh, and since the Modi government enjoyed widespread business support, at that time, hopes were really high that the economy would forge ahead. But that didn't happen, as you mentioned. Why did the process of economic reform stall? I wish I had a credible answer for that. It is true that there was a lot of business support for Prime Minister Modi when he came into office. In fact, if you go back in 2014... Modi campaigned on an economic platform that he will create jobs, he'll revive investment. And arguably, he had more political capital than any other recent prime minister um, because he had rock-solid majority in the parliament. That's true. Um, More than two-thirds of the states were controlled by BJP, his party. So in some sense, he could control more than 80% of India's GDP. Somehow, he seemed disinclined to invest his enormous political capital to implement the difficult reforms. Yes, something's happened. GST, for example, or the enactment of the bankruptcy code or the monetary policy changes uh, in the Reserve Bank, uh, inflation targeting in particular. But if you see, these were not his initiatives. 
These were policies that he inherited, and these have been in train for several years, the GST, for example, for 15 years. He did not initiate any fresh economic reform. He tried to do land acquisition reform, but when there was a backlash, quickly gave up and somehow believed that the economy will run on an autopilot. Mm -hmm. So that's why uh, the sin of not implementing reform has caught up with us and the economy is down to 5% growth. Now, since you were the former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, uh, what is your view of the demonetization exercise that the government undertook in 2016? Uh, what are the reasons that prompted it and what impact has it had on the Indian oh, economy? Frankly, I didn't expect that question because demonetization happened three years ago <laughs> and it's all you know, gone away from my memory. But looking back, you know, there were uh, several objectives that uh, motivated demonetization according to the government. It was to attack black money hoarding. It was to attack counterfeiting of currency and financing of terrorism. It was also to shift the economy from cash intensive to cash light. But if you look at it, only, if at all, only the first objective of black money justified anything as draconian as demonetization because if you really wanted to shift, you merely wanted to shift the economy from cash intensive to cash light, you didn't want, you did not have to do something as big as demonetization. But even there, people say that uh, that was uh, not a very well-informed move because people were not stupid to keep black money in the form of cash. They had already converted that to jewelry or to Swiss bank accounts or to foreign bank accounts or to real estate. Looking back, now that the dust has settled down, the economy paid a heavy price. In fact, people paid a heavy price. Um, hundreds of millions of people who were in the informal sector, where the transactions are almost entirely in cash, suffered enormous losses. Many of them lost jobs. Uh, many of them lost livelihood. The economy lost up to 1.5 percentage points of growth. So we paid heavy cost, heavy price. The benefits... Not certain because all that 15 or 16 trillion rupees of cash that was demonetized has come back uh, to the banking system. So it is not clear that any black money has been unearthed. So we have to look for some deeper benefits, some long-term benefits. Say, for example, if the tax GDP ratio goes up on a structural basis because of the fear of getting caught. Or if corruption comes down and the ease of doing business in India improves and investment goes up as a consequence and growth improves, that is a benefit, but uh, that'll take time. Uh, what do you see as the biggest risks that the Indian economy faces today? And uh, if you were the RBI governor today, what advice would you give the Modi government about how to turn the economy around? The biggest risk, I think, is that uh, we'll get locked into a low-growth spiral. We'll define a new Hindu rate of growth. That'll be at 5% or below that. And as I said, it is possible, but not probable, not inevitable. We can't raise the growth rate. India has the potential. The 
objectives are known. We need to raise investment. We need to address agricultural distress. We need to create jobs. We need to improve the productivity of investment. We need to improve outcomes in education and health. The agenda is also clear. Structural reforms addressing the real sectors of the economy, governance reforms to improve the ease of doing business. So what Prime Minister Modi should do, in my view, is that uh, he should uh, accept a responsibility for economic management, actually make a statement unequivocally saying that uh, repairing the economy, putting it on track for a $5 trillion output as, soon as, as quickly as possible will be his single-point agenda, will receive his undivided attention and lay out a roadmap with milestones for doing that. I think that's the advice I would give him. Uh, India's financial sector has been in real trouble, both the shadow banking sector as well as the mainstream banks which are suffering with uh, you know, <clears throat> bad loans. Uh, what do you think needs to be done to turn that around? You're right. Um, the financial sector, both the banking sector and the shadow banking sector, what we in India call the non-bank finance sector, are deeply stressed. The banking sector stress came because, as we spoke earlier in this conversation, investments had soared. Banks lent a lot of money to corporates, and that investment had soared. And that happened for a number of reasons that I discussed earlier. Um, banks were late to recognize these bad loans. Uh, the mechanisms for recovery were feeble. They were reluctant to enforce those mechanisms because there was a perverse set of incentives. Uh, there was an incentive in uh, not recognizing the loan and evergreening the loan because of the system of penalties and rewards that we have. So the bad loan problem festered and festered and became very big. Uh, that is on the banking side. The problem in the non-bank sector roughly paralleled that uh, with the default of the conglomerate Ireland FS last year that had a knock-on impact over the entire non-bank finance sector, which in fact is the reason behind consumption coming down today. So both the banking sector and the non-bank sector need to be repaired, what we call, uh, it used to be called a twin balance sheet problem. Now it's become a triple balance sheet problem. You need to repair the balance sheets of the corporates, balance sheets of the banks, balance sheets of the non-bank finance companies. The agenda is also very well known. Make the implementation of the bankruptcy code effective. Use other mechanisms for uh, uh, reviving units or uh, recovering money. Don't push everything onto bankruptcy code. It's got to be the last resort. Recapitalize banks. And uh, NBFC, some of the NBFC should be allowed to die under the bankruptcy process. And ultimately, I think uh, the government should own up to the fact that uh, public sector banks, as much as they have served the economy, They've uh, served a purpose. Now I think it's time to privatize them and move on. Uh, has the 
integrity of institutions like the Reserve Bank of India being compromised because of political and economic pressures? Uh, if so, what can be done? That question defies a yes or no answer. Let me talk about the Reserve Bank because uh, I'm familiar with that institution and familiar with that issue. I mean, now in December 2019, at around this time last year, there was an acrimonious spat between the government and the Reserve Bank of India that played out in the public domain for several weeks. I do want to say that the differences or even spats between governments and central banks are neither unique to India nor new. We have a spat here in this country, in the U.S., President Trump uh, saying that the Fed has gone crazy. We've had spat in Turkey, in, the, in Europe, in Japan. So India is not unique in terms of a difference between the government and the central bank. They're not new either. There were differences between the government and the governor before me, during my time, and after my time. What is different this time around was that uh, the differences between the government and the Reserve Bank of India played out in the public domain, and they got politicized. It, now that is behind us, there is uh, things have settled down to a new equilibrium, and that's a forgotten episode, and I hope that will not be repeated. For the long term, I think it's important both for the government and the central bank to recognize the importance of the autonomy of the central bank and respect that. After all, why should a central bank be autonomous? Just let me spend a minute on that. You know, uh, Around the world, central banks are given a certain amount of autonomy because they believe that it's good for macroeconomic management because preserving macroeconomic stability, which is important for growth and for development, requires taking a long-term view of the economy and requires taking decisions that might run counter to short-term compulsions, but inflict pain in the short term, but deliver long-term gains. You cannot leave such decisions to political executives. I'm talking about all countries, not just about India, because politicians, by definition, have a short-term outlook. They tend to compromise long-term sustainability for short-term gains. That's why you have a central bank with autonomy, uh, with a mandate to take a long-term view. So going forward, I think in India it's important for the central bank to recognize that uh, the government sets the mandate, government is the sovereign, and there are limits to the central bank's autonomy. And the government should realize that their job is to set the mandate, but not to tell the central bank how to implement it. In other words, the central bank should have implementation independence. The government should have goal independence. And that, I think, will be a Goldilocks relationship. That's true. Well, you were the governor of the RBI at a very interesting time, uh, from 2008 to 2013. It's a very critical period when you know global financial crisis ravaged the world economy. Uh, in fact, you even wrote a book uh, about leading the RBI through five turbulent years. Uh, so my question is, what leadership challenges did you face leading the RBI during that time? Uh, and how did you deal with those challenges and what lessons can others learn from your experience? 
Yes, yeah, certainly. I went into the Reserve Bank of India at a very turbulent time. As you said, I wrote that book, and I relive those memories even now, uh, six years later, or maybe ten years later now. You know, I went in as governor on the 5th of September 2008, and a series of events after that, 7th of September, Fannie and Freddie melted down. 8th of September, Countrywide went down. 10th of September, AIG came to the brink of a meltdown. 13th of September, Merrill Lynch vanished. <laughs> 16th of September, the Big Bang, Lehman Brothers collapsed. The global financial sector uh, came to a near-death experience. The global economy was experiencing the biggest crisis since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Virtually every country in the world was affected by the crisis, so was India. But in India, there was uh, dismay, disbelief, denial that we could be affected by the crisis for a number of reasons. So the story going around was that this new governor came, he brought on the crisis. <laughs> so I used to go along with that wherever I went in the country, around the world, people used to ask me, when will the crisis end? So I used to say, if you, if you say that the crisis started with me, it'll end when my term is over. And for good measure, I used to tell them when my term would be over. But here's the thing. The week after I left the Reserve Bank, crisis ended. <laughs> <laughs> Growth started going up, inflation started going down, the rupee stabilized. It was baptism by fire for me. You know, your question was about leadership lessons, uh, lots of lessons, and everywhere. That's a big growth industry now, lessons of the crisis, what lessons it has for monetary management, for financial management, for governments, for central banks, for leadership. Uh, there are books being written, dissertations being written, seminars being held. I can't talk about all of them, but let me just talk about one of them, right. which is uh, how important it is for a leader to have credibility. You know, when I went in as governor, as I told you, I was 10 days old, and uh, I was... An unknown unknown, a civil servant before that suddenly became a known unknown. But the governor has to be a known quantity. Yeah. The markets and other stakeholders need to be able to interpret what the governor is saying, what the governor is thinking. That time was denied to me. And there was a lot of anxiety in the markets about whether this greenhorn governor can manage this crisis. So I, there was, market did not have confidence in me. That was bad enough. But there was also this view that uh, I was sent into the Reserve Bank by the government um, to act at the government's behest, mm -hmm. that uh, I will compromise the Reserve Bank's autonomy and uh, say what the government wants to be done, uh, that, uh, that the formidable autonomy of the Reserve Bank, my predecessor protected, will be compromised. So people thought that I would do that. The crisis also required that government and central bank work together. Everywhere around the world, governments and central banks were working together in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe, in Japan, in China. But in India, when the government and the Reserve Bank were working together, the story going around was that I was compromising the Reserve Bank's autonomy. Mm -hmm. So I went into the Reserve Bank with not being very credible. So it took some time for me, for the world, for the stakeholders to understand me. So the lesson of my experience is that the leader needs to have credibility. And credibility is not given to you on a platter. You have to earn it. How did you earn it? 
well, you have to go through the slog. It's not something you can't uh, declare that I am independent, I will preserve and protect the autonomy of the Reserve Bank of India. People see your actions. And uh, I can say with some satisfaction that when I look back on my record, uh, I have, I believe, earned reasonable reputation uh, for uh, standing for the integrity and autonomy of the Reserve Bank of India. And that came through actions. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion now these days about uh, central banks launching their own digital currencies. Uh, do you think this is a good idea? I'm not sure that there is a clear-cut answer to good or bad. But let me, let's you know, talk about a bit of a background for that. Money, uh, you know, money has three functions. It's uh, in economics, it's uh, unit of account, uh, medium of exchange, and a store of value. Money issued by central banks, which is the norm around the world, performs all these three functions. It is legal tender. It is uncontested legal tender. Over the last 10 to 15 years, because of technology, we've seen several cryptocurrencies come into the market. Bitcoin was the first, but there's been Ethereum, and there are now about 50, 60 cryptocurrencies. None of them is legal tender. Uh, none of them has an asset backing like a central bank backing. They all have some backing. Uh, you know, for example, Bitcoin has the backing of some math puzzle. And all of them are managed by this blockchain technology in a decentralized way. A central bank digital currency that we're talking about is different from these cryptocurrencies because a central bank digital currency will, be, will perform like money, perform all the functions that we talked about, will be like traditional money except that it will be in the digital form. What are the advantages? Uh, the advantages will be that it will make uh, payment systems efficient. For example, if I have to transfer money to you, now we go through a commercial bank, uh, but if there was a central bank digital currency, you and I could transact directly through central bank accounts. People also say that uh, it will make monetary policy transmission very efficient, especially if they're going into negative interest rates. But on the other hand, on the other side of the balance sheet, there are costs. For example, it's possible that commercial banks might be undermined. Commercial banks, after all, perform an important function of financial intermediation that might be undermined. Also, the central bank might expose itself to credit risk, and that risk will be transferred to taxpayers. So it's not as if a central bank digital currency is unambiguously good. Central banks are watching this. Let me also add this, that uh, it is not as if central banks don't issue digital currencies. Now they do. But they issue them only to commercial banks. So the question is, how do, how do they expand this? First to financial non-bank companies, then to non-financial non-bank companies, then to ordinary people like you and me, whether this can be managed, whether this is necessary, and what implications it will have. These are all unsettled questions. And I think central banks will wait and watch before doing that. But some central banks, like Sweden, China, uh, they are going ahead, I believe, at a, at a quick pace. Now, if India were to try and launch a digital currency, how would it be done there? And 
How might that process differ from the way it could be done in a say, developed economy like the U.S.? You know, I heard the Governor of the Reserve Bank of India comment on this issue of whether the Reserve Bank will issue a digital currency, and he wasn't uh, um, definitive on that. He said, like I just said, that uh, they're watching the situation, and he didn't close the option, but he did not say that we, the RBI is going to do it soon. Uh, India's motivation for doing this will be financial inclusion um, because financial inclusion has been a major objective. And if this makes financial inclusion more efficient, deeper, there'll be a big motivation for India. And if technology can be used, in fact, technology has been the main bulwark behind the deepening of financial inclusion in India over the last 10 years. And this can accelerate and deepen that process. To your second question about how it might differ from a digital currency issued by the Federal Reserve, I'm actually thinking on my feet now, that, you know, you've got to recognize that the dollar is the dominant reserve currency today. So if the Federal Reserve were to issue a digital currency, it will very soon become the currency for international payment system. Whereas a digital currency issued by the Reserve Bank of India will not enjoy that status. And to end with the question with which we began, <laughs> when will the Indian elephant start dancing again? I hope soon, <laughs> uh, because as I said, an elephant is a strong animal, has great potential. But also one thing about an elephant is that uh, once it starts dancing, it can go on for a long, long time. So I'm hoping that the elephant will start dancing and will keep dancing and dancing and dancing. <laughs> Dr. Subarao, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.